0: I'm Johnny Cash. No fade. All right, guys, so everyone should be making their way back to their seats. (laughs) Thanks, Sophia. (laughs) Um, All right, so we're back one last time on the topic of discipline. Um, Yeah, final week. So again, I would remind you guys that this topic, discipline, whether we're talking like secular, meaning outside of the context of God, what the world thinks, or, or godly discipline, it's, it's a highly controversial subject. Biblical discipline is, is, is controversial even amongst people who claim Christ. Um, it's a sensitive subject, not because it should be or because it ought to be, but because of um, maybe just the bad or non-existent... Um, moral compass of, of our current world, right? Because of the pick-and-choosy nature of the the world of, of, of Christians, Christendom, it's called. Um, because of the pick-and-choosy nature of the parts we like about Christ and the parts we like about what it says here in the Bible. Um, discipline is a hard subject within the church, maybe perhaps because of the church's lack of of um practice in it and how where we've come from in that. Um there's there hasn't been a consistent understanding and a consistent practice of discipline within a body of the body of believers throughout uh the century. So it's it's here that I sort of wanna start for you guys and sort of take a little trip down history lane so that we can understand where we've come from um as a church at large, church universal, right, when it comes to this topic of discipline and carrying it out within the body. So, yeah, this is where we'll start. So throughout church history it's been largely affirmed, discipline, uh, something that we should be doing, um, but it's sort of sporadically been practiced um, throughout the, the ages. So, to start, during what's known as the patristic era, you can understand it better, just as the time of the early church fathers, so the first few hundred years after after Christ, during the time of people like Ignatius and Justin Martyr and Tertullian and Augustine and Clement and Origen, all these guys, during this period, around 100 to 500, year 100, 500, um, discipline was well understood and practiced within, within the body, but... Um, yeah, well understood in practice within the community. It was commonplace even for church discipline to take place on, on this day, on the day of the gathering of believers. Um, and it was, yeah, it was well understood and well um, purported. And um, Tertullian, I'll just, I have a quote here that, that uh, I pulled from him regarding um, the correction within the body. Tert- Tertullian once said this, for judgment is past and it carries great weight as it must among men certain that God sees them. And it is is notable—it is a notable foretaste of judgment to come, if any man has so sinned, to be banished from all share in our prayer, our assembly, and all holy interaction. So church, so church discipline was well-maintained for these first few hundred years. Makes sense, right? First few years after Christ, it makes sense that what he said and what he called us to do would be carried out, at least for a while. But then we get into the medieval era, so the next 500-year chunk of time. And then church discipline really took sort of a backseat. By this time, it became sort of common that the church gave a certain person a role within the body to enact and hand out discipline rather than the whole body participating in it. Uh, Sort of one thing led to another, and it was sort of largely influenced by something going on in Constantinople at the time, a deacon or something, was involved in some sexual sin, and so discipline was required. Um, and the bishop of Constantinople, uh, his name was Nectarius, great name, Nectarius, um, he abolished that role within the church, that role of handing out discipline just because of the public sort of backlash and scandal that it had created at the time. And his thought was, well, no, none of that is better than what is, what is perceived of, of being Christian. Um, yeah, and so as a result, church discipline, um, as scripture demonstrates it, was largely, it it disappeared for a long period of time until the days sort of leading up to the Reformation. So the Reformation, um, year 1500, 1750, somewhere around there, um, this faulty mechanism of, of doing away with it and of, um, giving it, I sort of skipped a part, my bad. So the public backlash in Constantinople, right? So the role was taken away from the person within the church. Um, as a result of that, there became a mechanism for what we see in the Roman Catholic Church today, right? The private confession and forgiveness and, and that sort of thing. And so, yeah, discipline as a body was disappeared as it, as it should have. And now we have this weird sort of private, secret um, discipline and confession of sin and, and all these things. So this faulty mechanism, sorry, this faulty mechanism ultimately led to um, what Martin Luther had a real beef with when it came to the Reformation. So he criticized in particular, um, if you can recall from when we did Chad, at least half of you, right, that were here, <laughs> um, church history, um, he had an issue with how indulgences were handled by the church, right? Uh and as a substitute, really, for true repentance and contrition of of sin. So discipline was taken away publicly, and now it's done privately, and so this new mechanism that was created doesn't um, reach the heart, doesn't reach true repentance and true uh, contrition for the believing person that's struggling with any sort of sin. Um, And so he sought to bring it back to a more biblical understanding of ecclesial discipline, so... Ecclesia, the church, the gathering of believers that, that practice and um, the outworking of discipline as it should be. And then you have people like John Calvin and the Anabaptists who sort of would reaffirm these same things that Martin Luther was saying as far as back to what Scripture says um, in regards to discipline. And so again, it took hold. It took hold for a little while. But then we have the modern era that's, that was brought forward, the Enlightenment the Enlightenment and um, the Enlightenment period and just the convictions um, of that uh, and sort of the enthusiasm for individualism, right? This plus just sort of the lax or or blasé attitude toward um, church membership, I guess, and the lack of significance placed on relationship. So again, undercut and did away with the need and the calling for church discipline within the body. And so it's important for us to understand just sort of this rough history of where we've come within the church as far as this topic of, of discipline uh, goes. It's important to understand just the rise and fall nature and yeah, throughout the years and think about it like um, a memorial we set up, right? We, we set up memorials of, of bad things even so that we don't go back to them, right? So it's important to understand the history of discipline so that we don't Repeat the error of of our ways, of the church's ways throughout time, and so it's important to yeah just just refresh ourselves on that. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so how does Scripture now reflect to discipline within the body? What examples are we given? I've sort of been foreshadowing this the last couple weeks, right, of some areas in Scripture that we'll go over regarding church discipline. Does Christ speak to the action and responsibility of Communal discipline um, in his church Um, and was it practiced in the early church? Well, we know it was based on just the rough history that we just went over Um, Yeah, yes to all those things. Yes, it was preached by Christ and commanded by Christ. Yes, it was The torch was carried after Christ left Um, and so those are some of the things we'll go over today Discipline uh, correction and teaching is a totally consistent um, message um, And it's a totally consistent thing when understanding the basic purposes of the church, the church's responsibility. So if we sort of dumb down the church's responsibility in two two basic ideas, right? We have evangelism, and then we have training, evangelism, making disciples, right? The Great Commission. Evangelism ministers to the people that are outside of the church to bring them to Christ and conforming their their image and character to him, and dis- discipline then takes hold after they've been brought in, right? They're grounded in scripture, right? And that's sort of our mission here at Aletheia. Preach, preach tether ground. Preach tether ground, right? Those are the three things. Speak to ground. Yeah, same difference. Speak to ground. Discipline is grounding, okay? Um, and the word is always the measurement for that. So um, before we go on, I sort of want to, share with you guys some foundation, a basis for understanding when it is called for, when it is needed uh, within the body, just understanding that basis. Um, Scripture calls out just a multitude of reasons. We went over some of them in the first week, right? We just sort of rattled off all these different areas in Scripture that say, yes, it's something that God loves and God wants as part of his church, and um, yeah, I gave you a few of those examples. Um, and I've been saying all, all month, I've been beating the drum about how it's never based on or, or um, produced out of feelings or, or emotions or likes and dislikes, but scripture is always the guide and measurement for, for living and for discipline. So what does scripture say? Generally speaking, scripture says that discipline is needed whenever um, disorderly conduct Or disruption in the body occurs anything that negatively impacts the unity of the body um, Calls for discipline. It's anything that is outside the prescribed um, commands and and witness of who Christ was and what he um, Called us to and it's needed when there's anything that goes against just the revealed character of God again through Christ or through his word so generally speaking that's when discipline is is called for but specifically speaking Um, scripture speaks to this uh, in in very specific ways discipline is needed and scripture calls for it and we'll go over Matthew 18 uh, when there is conflict between believers regarding sin or behavior outside of um, who we're called to be discipline is needed when there is a divisive people in the church Romans 16 says watch out for people who cause divisions and upset people's faith by teaching things contrary to what you have been taught stay away from them Such people are not serving Christ our Lord. They are serving their own personal interests. By smooth talk and glowing words, they deceive innocent people. And Titus 3 says, do not get involved in foolish discussions about spiritual pedigrees or in quarrels and fights about obedience to Jewish laws. These things are useless and a waste of time. If people are causing divisions among you, give a first and second warning. After that have nothing more to do with them. People like that have turned away from the truth and their own sins condemn them. So whenever there's divisiveness when the ch- within the church, discipline is called for. Uh, discipline is needed when there is any kind of, any kind of immoral or sinful conduct. Um, <laughs> I wrote here, such as, but not limited to, if you go to 1 Corinthians, for example, incest, immoral behavior, coveting, idolatry, abusive behavior, drunkenness, swindling, so like cheating, um, idleness, so laziness, basically anything things like what Paul lists in his first letter here in the Corinthians. He says, it isn't my responsibility to judge others, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge judge those inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those on the outside, but as the scriptures say, you must remove the evil person among you. So anytime these immoral or sinful behaviors pop up, discipline is required. Paul commands us to cut it out, and there's ways to do that. We'll get into that. Discipline is necessary when there is any kind of Um, erroneous or false teaching and I won't you know give you the the long laundry list of it in scripture but it's there there's all sorts of warning against false teaching um, and how we should look out for it and don't allow it to be amongst you cut it out the point is and I said it in week one that correction and teaching are called out discipline is needed in order to live holy and righteously and it's needed in specific moments as we just went over to address specific inappropriate behaviors and actions. But it looks a certain way, and so this is where we get into Matthew 18 here. So I'll start by reading Matthew 18. Um, We'll just start at verse 12, go to verse 19. So if you want to follow along, Matthew 18, the first book in the New Testament for those that don't know. I'll give you five seconds to get there. <clears throat> alright Matthew 18 12 through 19 if a man, is hun- if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away what will he do? won't he leave this, the 99 others on the hills and go out to search for the one that is lost and if he finds it I tell you the truth uh, he will rejoice over it more than the 99 and din- that didn't wander away in the same way it is not my heavenly father's will it is not my heavenly father's will that even one of these little ones should perish perish if another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses, you have won that person back. But if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take, away, take your case to the church. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or corrupt tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. I also tell you this, if two of you agree here on earth concerning anything you ask, my Father in heaven will do it for you. For where two or three gather together as my followers, I am there among them. (coughs) So the message of the gospel over time has sort of been stupefied, right? It has been bastardized, dumbed down into believing that Jesus was all love, or Jesus wouldn't have done this, or there's no way Jesus would have said this. All these different things that you hear about people that are so sure of who Jesus was and what he did, right? But the call in the gospel is to repent and follow Christ, and that is supposed to look a certain way. Christ says himself, after listing off the people that are closest to us, our family members. He says, count the cost of following me. It comes at a cost, and you should be prepared for that. Come do the death march with me, he says. We are called to turn from sin and live righteously. And this requires an accountable discipline. Accountable, right? Investment. Those are the words we've been going over all year. It requires an accountable discipline within the church. And the church should be providing it. That's the mechanism that was set up. That's the system God gave us and Christ commanded us to in order to operate and be successful in living righteously, living sin-free lives. We ended last week on Hebrews 12, 14, 15. That's roughly where we ended. It says this, I'll repeat it again. Work at living in peace with everyone and work at living a holy life for those who are not holy will not see the Lord. Look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. So Hebrews says clearly, and it should be taken seriously, um, that if we fail at this, if we fail at this calling for discipline within the body for the purposes of remaining holy and remaining righteous in the way that we live, if we fail at this, then we're at risk of ever seeing God. The author of Hebrews says this, and when you think about it, I mean, that's that's heavy, and that's really serious. That's not something that I personally would want for you guys in, in lacking discipline, so that the risk is there for ever seeing God. That's not something I would expect personally back in return. That's not something I would want for my son, and that's not something I would want for your sons and daughters, and future kids. It's a serious matter, church discipline, and it's It's a calling and it's a command that we're given to help us in our relationship with God and keep it right and keep it pure um, and keep it to where it should be. We should be striving, living in a constant repentance um, for the purposes of holiness. And if we're not pursuing that, then I don't know how we can honestly call ourselves um, disciples, disciplined followers of Christ. Um, So it's really, really important, and I don't really know how else to stress that enough. It's really important for you guys to um, own it as something that's beautiful rather than something that is uncomfortable and I don't like those conversations and that person, they don't know me or whatever, these things. This is a beautiful thing that we're given. And so when we have these conversations and interactions with people who are clarifying where we're coming from, how we're acting, what we're doing, it's, it's to keep us pure before God. It's for the benefit of our relationship. And we all have a part in that. So back to Matthew 18, Um, as a starting point, as a starting point um, for calling attention to another believer's um, behaviors or actions, uh, Christ commands us to first go in private. If there's an issue um, in the body, especially amongst people, um, and if there's an issue that um, is disruptive to the body, an issue that scripture speaks to as being immoral or sinful or counter what we should be like as believers then we are called to privately go first and Jesus says that when we do this and if we're we're successful then we and if that person listens and confesses then we have won them back we've brought them back from the bad path back onto the right path of where they should be Um, and that's, that's like the greatest thing that we can do for each other is bringing someone, grabbing them and bringing them back to where they should be Um, I was watching a video, um, a Jeff Durbin video. So Jeff Durbin is the Apologia Church guy. He's sort of a guy that we've been liking, listened to his debates, along with James White and stuff. But Jeff Durbin um, sort of suggested in a really funny way um, that you can expect this, right? You can expect this um, amongst yourselves, amongst ourselves as a body, right? Jesus saves a bunch of sinful people and then tells them to hang out together. And so what happens when a bunch of sinful people are saved and are told to start hanging out together? Well, d- despite being saved from their sin, they still struggle with it, right? Um, and there's plenty of opportunities for it, especially here at this church, right? We're not, a, we're not a Sunday church, and we'll come back next Sunday and Sunday and Sunday. We're a Sunday church, a Monday church, a Tuesday church. There's things going on all the time. Um, cadre, uh, Bible studies, at least once a week, sometimes twice a week. Midnight oil, midnight monthly, smiths, firewalkers, all these different things, um, outsiders, all these different opportunities for us to be struggling in that right the opportunities are all there but despite all of these things despite the failings here and there, the the differences in personality, the, the differences and struggles in communicating with one another and reflecting who we should be in all these different aspects of our life, the likes and dislikes, the clashes of personality I think I already said that. Um, we're supposed to confront these things when they are counter, He makes it clear. When they are counter what Christ um, demonstrated, what scripture says, when they are opposite of how we should be living, we're supposed to confront these things amongst each other. And we're supposed to start first privately, go to them privately. And if we are successful and if they listen and if they um, acknowledge the fact that how they were acting, how they were communicating, any number of things was counter what we should be doing, how we should be, then if we win them back and they listen, then he says just that. We've won them back. Some previous context before we move on in Matthew 18 um, for where we are. Um, most of you might recognize Matthew, I don't know if most of you will, Matthew 5 as the place where Christ says, um, do not think that I have come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Um, the Greek language that's used in this in this passage of scripture in, in Matthew 5 is, um, is me namasete, that's the Greek for it, and it me namasete doesn't just mean, it's not Christ sort of just saying, oh, you know, don't, don't worry about it, you know, I, I've, I've come not to abolish it, it's not, it's not lax, right? It's stern, it's very clear. Christ is saying do not even begin to think that I have come to abolish my father's law but to fulfill it. Do not even begin. Don't let it enter your minds, is what he's saying. Me namasete, that I have come to abolish God's law, but to fulfill it. Um, The law of God, the Levitical laws, condemns, so we're moving on here, um, verse uh, verse 17. The law of God um, condemns the accusations and um, bringing light to someone's um, immoral behavior on the basis of only one. Uh, Jesus appeals to a standard in God's judicial law, to his civil code, rather than like his ceremonial law or his um, moral law, but his civil code. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 19, and put a pin in that because we'll revisit it later. Um, But Jesus assumes the continuity of God's law in the New Testament and the the new gathering of believers and the covenant for for the New Testament community of believers. And this same continuity um, for calling for for witnesses to help and support that discipline and bringing them back onto the right path is is assumed throughout Scripture. Um, Numbers 35.30 says, all murderers must be put to death, but only if evidence is presented by more than one witness. Sorry about that. Um, no one may be put to death on the testimony of only one. Second Corinthians, Paul says, This is the third time I am coming to visit you. And as the scriptures say, the facts of every case must be established by the testimony of two or three. I have already warned those who have been sinning when I was there on my second visit. Now I again warn them and all others, just as I did before. The next time I will not spare them. John chapter 8, Jesus says, These claims are valid even though I make them about myself. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you don't know this about me. You judge me by human standards, but I do not judge anyone. And if I did, my judgment would be correct in every respect, because I am not alone. The Father who sent me is with me. Your own law says that if two people agree about something, their witness is accepted as fact. I am one witness, and my Father is the other. Paul says again in 1 Timothy, Do not listen to an accusation against an elder, um, for example, unless it is confirmed by two or three. Those who, sh- who sin should be reprimanded in front of the whole church. This will serve as a strong warning to others for living sinful lives. Hebrews 10, the author says, Dear friends, if we deliberately continue sinning after we have received knowledge of the truth, there is no longer any sacrifice that will cover these sins. There is only the terrible expectation of God's judgment and the raging fire that will consume his enemies. For anyone who refused to obey the law of Moses was put to death without mercy on the testimony of two or three. So the question for us in understanding and enacting discipline is do we appeal to each other using this sort of standard, first privately and then with witness, with support to bringing that person back. When somebody says something about someone or indicts someone or calls into question their their, um, behavior, um, when you start to have a feeling, right? It's never left there, right? It's never left at feelings but do you bring support and confirm it on the evidence of two or three witnesses? Do you apply this standard for discipline um, amongst ourselves? Do we apply it amongst ourselves? Does the world even come close to this? Take a look at the last year and where we're at with culture, right? Um, All the hashtag movements that that are around right now and and rallies, Um, all of this stuff is based on a guilty until proven innocent culture now, rather than the other way around. And now toxic and dangerous, that can be. And the second you start um, wanting to live by that, it comes back around and eats you. If you guys were paying attention to the news, that actress Asia Argento, I think that's how you pronounce her name, the Italian actress, she was one of the first um, trailblazers for the Me Too movement, right? Against Harvey Weinstein. Well, guess what just was found out about her? That she had an inappropriate relationship with a young kid and she imposed herself on him. And so the same thing that she was wanting to, you know, condemn people with, that same sort of attitude, came back full circle and it got her. So be careful with that. Um, Guilty until proven innocent culture. Basic human rights, right, are slowly withering away because of a lack of understanding of the godly worldview and the godly discipline that we're called to people's lives and reputations being utterly destroyed based on circumstantial or no evidence and, and hearsay. Uh, all you have to do nowadays, right, is go to a news outlet, give a name, make an accusation, done. That person's reputation is tattered. They're destroyed. Their careers are destroyed. Their personal lives are destroyed because of um, where, we, where we are as a culture without God and Accepting just anything as 100% truth, right? And 100% fact But God sought to prevent that in his judicial law He sought to protect against it In how he set things up for the Jews Consequences were given and feared for false accusations And that's where we get the evidence of two or three from So going back to Deuteronomy 19 And I'll read it for you this time It says, you must not convict anyone of a crime on the testimony of only one. The facts of the case must be established by the testimony of two or three. If a malicious witness comes forward and accuses someone of a crime, then both the accuser and accused must appear before the Lord by coming to the priest and judges, excuse me, in office at the time. The judge must investigate the case thoroughly. If the accuser has brought false charges against his fellow Israelites, you must impose on the accuser the same sentence he intended For the other person. In this way, you will purge such evil from among you. Even back then, discipline was done diligently and slowly, right? The judges, it says, fought diligently on these things. Patience and deep thought were involved when it came to um, handling discipline within the body and keeping people um, right and pure. Think about how this would correct and preserve our society nowadays, um, and how the justice system would be. Nowadays, if we still live by this sort of standard and fear for um, just throwing anything out there on the basis of, of nothing, really, a feeling. Um, if people recognize God's law was right and just, then um, maybe they would think twice about it. But in this process, in this first few uh, passages here, in Matthew 18, starting at verse 15, Jesus is saying this about discipline, and it's certainly implied that discipline is slow, it's slow, it's patient, and it's wise, and it's prayerful, it's not quick, and with emotion, and from your gut, you know, it's slow, and secondly, it's about winning your brother or sister back to God, pulling them back to the path where they should be, not, um, it's not based on your personal dislikes of a person, right, there's plenty of people (laughs) there, we talk about, and I'll just be vulnerable. We talk about some people within the body of Christ where you wonder if if it wasn't for God and if it wasn't for who we're called to be. I wonder if I'd be friends with these people outside of the body, right? That's a a realistic thought that we have, and it's okay to have those thoughts, but what's more important is that you don't stop there, right? And you work at loving everyone and love the differences and how they were created and all these things, but um, we don't base discipline based on that, based on I just really don't like that person and I think they're, they're looking at me in a weird way or I don't, I don't like how they're interacted with me and so I want to bring this to attention so that we can get rid of them or whatever or they feel not loved. A post-requisite, if you will, so if, a, yeah, a post-requisite, so something that is called for after discipline um, is that within the body is, is love and compassion and, and reconciliation and grace and forgiveness. Winning them back to God is the purpose for discipline, not getting rid of them. Okay? However, Scripture says that there are circumstances that require serious and severe consequences. And how we are handling discipline within the community. Especially if the person on the receiving end of this correction, this teaching, this following, um, refuses to listen. Um, Christ says if they have refused to listen to you privately, if they refuse to listen to you with witness, and if they refuse to listen to the church in calling them out in this whatever sort of sinful behavior or action they're doing, then Christ says to treat that person as a pagan or a tax collector. (coughs) Gentiles, pagans, were seen as people that didn't know God, right? They either didn't know God or they chose not to know God. They suppressed the truth. Likewise, tax collectors were seen as people who were corrupt, of little moral, um, what do you call that? Substance. substance. Little moral substance. Um, so the command is to treat them as people who are not in the body of Christ. They don't know God. They've chosen to go against it. But I will add this. There's a major caveat in, in that, in understanding what is meant here and what Christ means. Um, We're, if we remember that the point of discipline is to bring them back always, right? The point is to highlight the error of how they're living, to, in some cases, send them away because of, because what they're doing is not in line with who we're called to be because of that attitude or behavior is, um, can corrupt the whole, right? Hebrews 14, 12, Hebrews 12, Hebrews 12, 14, I can't remember what we just quoted, but Describes it as a bitter root. Get rid of it. It's a bitter root. So the question becomes, how do we treat these people then, after that? Do we treat them as lesser because they struggle with this, whatever it is that they struggle with? Do we treat them as garbage who have no place in God's family? Uh, Or do we view them as an object of mission still, right? We don't just discipline and forget right? We discipline always with the hope and the purpose of bringing them back. They don't ever leave our minds. Do we view them as someone who needs the call to repentance and reunification with God? The importance of what Christ says isn't that we forever forget. Never. Never forever forget and throw away these people who've chosen to harden their hearts to who who they're called to be. They're not pieces of trash. 1st Corinthians 5, I'm going to read 1st Corinthians 5, so after Romans, if you want to read with me uh, We'll just start at verse 1, we'll go through 11, 1st Corinthians 5, 1 through 11 I can hardly believe the report about the sexual immorality going on am- among you, something that even the pagans don't do I thought that's funny sin so bad, even the pagans don't do it. It's a funny note to me. Um, I am told that a man in your church is living in sin with his stepmother. You are so proud of yourselves, but you should be mourning and sorrow and shame, and you should remove this man from your fellowship. Even though I am not with you in person, I am with you in spirit, and as though I were there, I have already passed judgment on this man in the name of the Lord Jesus. You must call a meeting of the church. I will be present with you in spirit, and so will the power of our Lord Jesus." Then you must throw this man out and hand him over to Satan so that his sinful nature excuse me, will be destroyed and he himself will be saved on the day the Lord returns. Your boasting about this is terrible. Don't you realize <clears throat> that this sin is like a little yeast that spreads through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast by removing this wicked person from among you. Then you will be like a fresh batch of dough made without yeast, which is what you really are. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us, so let us celebrate the festival Not with the old bread of wickedness and evil, but with the new bread of sincerity and truth. When I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. But I wasn't talking about the unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin or are greedy or who cheat people or worship idols. You would have to leave this world to avoid people like that. I meant that you are not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer, yet indulges in sexual sin or is greedy or idols, or is abusive or drunkard or cheats people. Don't even eat with such people. So we see here, even after Christ, even after the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ, Paul maintaining the same standard for church discipline within the body, for the purposes of keeping the body pure. We talked about that last week. Paul commands the community in Corinth to cut it out cut it out from cut out the evil from among you he uses the metaphor of the yeast running through the dough the dough and spoiling the whole batch sin and immoral behavior um, when unchecked and unaddressed is is like cancer right when we are refusing to address it and um, acknowledge it as wrong and as counter um, who we're called to be then it is like a cancer that spreads. And so Paul says, just as Jesus says, cut it out. But, again, to reaffirm it, what I appreciate about this example, um, specifically here in, with the church in Corinth, is the follow-through. The follow-through is never just cut out, leave behind, forget them. You know, the follow-through is always rooted in hope. And Paul makes sure, makes sure to address it. 2 Corinthians Chapter 2, I am not overstating it when I say that the man who caused all the trouble hurt all of you more than he hurt me. So we're talking about the same person here. The man who caused all the trouble hurt all of you more than he hurt me. Most of you opposed him, and, he, and that was punishment enough. Now, however, it is time to forgive and comfort him, otherwise he may be overcome by discouragement. So I urge you now to reaffirm your love for him. I wrote to you as I did to test you and see if you would fully comply with my instructions. When you forgive this man, I forgive him too. And when I forgive whatever needs to be forgiven, I do so with Christ's authority for your benefit so that Satan will not outsmart us, for we are all familiar with his evil schemes. So the mission and discipline comes full circle. Um, The right (laughs) full circle. The call for forgiveness and for grace and for reconciliation after repentance was there in extreme circumstances again extreme consequences might be needed this person needed to be cut out removed and in doing this paul says it's not with joy and exuberance that we feel this way that we give this sort of discipline out D- remember i think uh collins cell group was talking more uh, about it in one of the, in one of the weeks but discipline is painful sometimes it's it's not great um but Paul said, yeah, it's, not, it's, it's painful and it's not great, but it's understood in its proper context. It allows us to get over that, get over our own like, insecurities, if you wanna call it that, about, about the pain that's involved in correction and right teaching. Paul said, I wrote that letter in great anguish, with a troubled heart and many tears. It's not something that we take lightly or quickly with emotion and with, with feeling. Uh, It's something that we grieve over when it's needed, especially in extreme circumstances like we're talking about here. Godly discipline, though, understood in its proper context of teaching and correcting and bringing them back on the path for the purposes of maintaining righteousness and rooted in love always gives hope for the best possible outcome. And so when the time is right, as it says in Scripture, and when genuine repentance takes place, and we know this by proof by the way that they live, Scripture speaks about that too, then we are to accept and reintegrate these people back into the body. So it's hard not to think about this discipline, and maybe you guys have talked about it a little bit in cell groups um, already, but it's hard not to think about this extreme example without thinking about Aletheia's own experience with it, right? And we don't need to name names, I'm not going to name names up here, but we have experience with this the elders have experience with this the whole body has experience with this someone years ago someone that was close to a lot of us was living in sin right they were living in a way that they should not be living and doing things they should not be doing and when it was brought to attention it was done slowly and patiently and it was done um, with hardship and it was hardship with us uh, right.